Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 30th of January 2023 and this is episode 286. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to the authors Dr Dothy O'Corran and Gerald Henry about their recent book on Irish revolutionary and republican leader Cathal Brewer. Dothy is a lecturer in history in the School of History and Geography at Dublin City University and Gerard is a research fellow also at Dublin City University. Their book is published by Four Courts Press. Dothy and Gerard spoke to me from their respective offices in the Republic of Ireland. Gentlemen, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Before we start, could you tell us about yourselves and how you both became interested interested in Cochalbrugha, Ireland and the Great War? Tom, I, I worked most of my life in the public health service here in Ireland and I took early retirement in my mid-50s. Um, I had a very personal and deep interest in Irish, particularly Irish history. And I then um, studied history at third level um, with Dublin City University. And I completed my TSAs, PhD TSAs, uh, towards the end of 2019 and was awarded a PhD in uh, 2020. Um, I knew Dahi through DCU. In fact, he, he supervised my PhD thesis. And um, I, I think the Cahal Brua was part of, was one of Dahi's projects. And uh, Dahi actually invited me um, to work on the project with him. And I was quite delighted to do it and um, probably caused me to reflect myself on what I knew about Cahal Brua. And I would probably just say at this point, um, for most people, I think in Ireland, uh, Cahal Brua's name is well known. Um, we have a street here in central Dublin called after Cahal Brua. We have a, a barracks, a military barracks in Rat Mines called after him and, and a college. And after that, um, I think if you ask many people, they won't be able to say much more about him. Maybe a little bit about his involvement in um, the 1916 uh, Rising and his role and death in the Civil War. Um, but that would be about it. And I think it brings me back to the point to say that there has been an absence kind of within the historiography of the Irish Revolution in, in relation to uh, Brewer's contribution. And uh, certainly that was another reason why I was personally delighted to work on this project. Um, I'm a historian, Tom, based in the School of History and Geography at Dublin City University. My specialism is 20th century uh, Irish history. And within that, uh, I am particularly fascinated by Irish Catholicism uh, and by the Irish Revolution. That decade between 1912 and uh, 1923, when an independent 
Ireland comes into being. And of course, it is a decade where the First World War is absolutely pivotal. There would have been no 1916 rising without the war. Um, and uh, without the 1916 rising, there may not have been uh, the, the Irish War of Independence. Now, hundreds of books have been written uh, about uh, the Irish Revolution. M many of them make a passing uh, reference or two uh, to the uh, contribution of Cahal Brua, but very little beyond that. Uh, so um, partly out of curiosity and partly out of a determination to uh, uncover uh, Brewer's contribution, uh, Jerry and I, we wanted to reappraise uh, his, uh, his, his involvement. And that was the core objective uh, of our new study of Cahill Brewer. So Cahill Brewer was born Charles William at St John Burgess on the 18th of July, 1874. Can you start by telling us about his sort of background, early life and childhood? Um, I, I suppose kind of the English form of his name <laughs> would be much easier to deal with. And it wasn't until later that he changed his name to Cahill Brewer. But Cahill Brewer, he came from a very comfortable background. Uh, his father, Thomas Brewer, was a, a furniture dealer, an antique dealer in Dublin. His mother was Marianne Flynn, who came from a comfortable background also. Her father kind of had a lot of properties in Dublin and Marianne inherited some of those uh, properties. Now, Brewer was the tent of 14 children. So they had a very good lifestyle and his father's business thrived. He, in fact, um, in the 1880s, opened an antique store near Oxford Street in London. But because of a, mis a misadventure uh, to do with a business enterprise in Australia, which was being handled kind of by two of uh, Brewer's brothers, his eldest brothers, the business venture collapsed. In fact, you could say that the, uh, his two brothers kind of embezzled his father to a certain extent and the father was declared bankrupt. And this had a very um, telling impact on Brewer's lifestyle and the family's lifestyle from, from there on in. Uh, Brewer was attending Belvedere College here in Dublin, a very prestigious college. It cut short his education there, and it put an end to his aspirations in following and pursuing a medical career. And I think at this stage, you can, and particularly kind of after his father's death, his father died about 10 years after the bankrupt, bankruptcy in 1899. And it left uh, a, Brewer with a huge responsibility. Uh, he took on responsibility for his mother's welfare, his sister's welfare, ensuring that they had adequate accommodation and a, a means of living. But more importantly, uh, the financial ruin of his father left a very uh, sizable kind of impact with Brewer for the rest of his life. And it's probably something that we will uh, refer to later. He was a man who certainly uh, wanted to economize and to look after money to the best extent possible. And he found it um, necessary to look for employment after his education finished. And he took up uh, a job with uh, Hayes and Finch here in Dublin, 
who uh, were in the business of manufacturing uh, church candles. Uh, but by 1909, he set up his own business with two brothers uh, by the name of Lawler. Um, but um, I think at, that's, at this stage, I think it's important to say that there was no kind of um, very serious kind of political influence um, on Brewer in his early teenage years. We know that um, his father's family would have been a supporter of home rule and, you know, might be described as coming from a Fenian background. And um, his father kind of was of the Protestant faith. His mother was a Catholic and all of the children were raised as Catholics. But insofar as kind of his his political influence developed. Maybe I'll hand it over to you, Dahi, and his involvement with the Gaelic League, etc. Um, okay, Jerry. Uh, I suppose one point that, that we could add, Tom, if you don't mind, um, Brewer was a really exceptional sportsman and an athlete, uh, and he was far more interested uh, in sports and competition um, in in his in his younger years. Um, he was an, he was really excellent uh, at swimming. He was an excellent cricketer. Uh, represented Leinster in cricket. He played rugby at school. He was a very fine gymnast. Good enough, Tom, uh, that he would have represented Ireland. Uh, in gymnastic competitions uh, between Ireland, England, Wales and Scotland. Um, he was also uh, a, a fine boxer uh, and a cyclist. Uh, and then uh, he also was a very good um, Gaelic footballer uh, and hurler. And uh, particularly after he joined the Gaelic League, uh, he sort of um, kind of renounced association football and tended to and rugby and tended to pursue instead uh, only Gaelic sports. So Gaelic football uh, and hurling. Now, when Brewer joined uh, the Gaelic League at the end of the 19th century, this is really a transformative experience uh, for him. Um, like many of his uh, generation, um, he becomes uh, drawn to uh, Conor Nagaiga or the Gaelic League, uh, the purpose of which uh, is to revive uh, the Irish language uh, and Irish culture, to make the Irish language a spoken language uh, in, in Ireland again. Now, it, it um, allows Brewer to kind of uh, meet like-minded uh, individuals. And one of his best uh, friends in the Gaelic League was Eamon Kant, uh, who was later uh, his commandant uh, during the 1916 Rising. And many people who joined the Gaelic League uh, then gravitated uh, over time towards militant uh, nationalism. Now, uh, Brewer's work, as Jerry mentioned, um, uh, selling candles and church goods, uh, allowed him to frequent uh, Gaelic League classes throughout Ireland. Uh, in 1908, he became uh, president of the Keating branch of the Gaelic League. Now, the Keating branch is, is significant uh, because it, it was uh, advanced politically, by which I mean uh, its members, um, most of whom uh, belonged to the, to the secret oath-bound society, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was committed to the achievement of an Irish Republic uh, through, through force. Uh, so there's this intermingling uh, of these cultural nationalists and physical uh, force uh, proponents. Now, most, I suppose, significantly of all, uh, the Gaelic League allowed uh, Brewer uh, to meet his future wife, uh, Kathleen Kingston. So he found himself one day at a Gaelic League class in Burr uh, in, in County uh, Offaly. 
where where he met uh, Kathleen, and they were. I think they met. I could be wrong on this, Jerry. Was it nineteen oh nine? Nineteen oh nine. Yeah. Uh, and then they were married uh, in in nineteen in nineteen twelve. Uh, they lived in Ratmines in Dublin. They had six uh, six children. Now it was not unusual at this time uh, for the Gaelic League uh, to uh, occasion uh, romantic uh, involvements. Uh, the likes of Eamon de Valera, for example, also met uh, his future wife uh, through uh, through the Gaelic League. Why does he become a Republican during this period? Um, maybe looking to end British rule in Ireland rather than maybe joining the home rule movement. Yeah, if I just come in there, uh, Tom, um, when Brewer joined the IRB, or uh, sorry, the the Gaelic League, there was a very strong link between the Gaelic League and the Irish Republican Brotherhood. So um, you can correct me, Dahi, I think it was 1908, he was sworn into the um, IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, you know, who who had... uh, whose main goal was the establishment of an Irish Republic. And I think the thing to understand about the the, the Gaelic League, it it wasn't just about learning the Irish language. It uh, brought people into a better understanding of Irish history. It kind of, it, it was a newfound phase of Irish nationalism, Irish culture, and a strong link, as I said, with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Um, d- developed kind of within a cohort of people of similar-minded people to Brewer at this stage, this desire for separatism in the first instance, but also now to the Irish Republican Brotherhood for a for a republic. And I, I think it's as well to mention that uh, Dahi spoke about uh, Kathleen Kingston, who became Brewer's future wife. She would have been like-minded, and you know, certainly gave her husband that full support to his commitment um, for the rest of for for the the rest of his life. So like it was a remarkable period of time within Irish history, the end kind of of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, this new rise in Irish nationalism and also uh, republicanism. And Brewer in particular, bought into this so strongly that he never for the rest of his life wavered from it. And, you know, we'll see the conflicts that he had to endure um, in later episodes of his life in that regard up to the time of his death. I, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, to that Dahi. Yeah, there, there are two points that are worth um, adding, I think. The first is that um, in the early 20th century, uh, the IRB was revitalised by uh, Young Turks, the likes of uh, Sean McDermott, one of the key uh, planners of the 1916 Rising, and Bulmer Hobson. And they actively uh, recruited um, uh, new members. And Brewer, in a sense, was an ideal recruit uh, because of his um, commitment to Irish culture and the Irish language. Uh, and also his uh, his job, Tom, as uh, a commercial traveller, he had the ideal cover to evangelise for the Irish Republican Brotherhood throughout the country, uh, and he would have sworn in uh, various new members, uh, some of whom became very prominent, the likes of uh, Austin Stack, who uh, became a government minister. Uh, the other point, Tom, that's worth bearing in mind, when Brewer joined the IRB in 1908, home rule was not on either the Irish uh, or the British political agenda. 
Home rule uh, only re-entered uh, the equation uh, after uh, the uh, constitutional crisis uh, over the people's budget and the remarkable results of the two elections in 1910, which somewhat surprisingly left Redmond uh, holding um, uh, the balance of power at Westminster. The price of that and the price of supporting the Parliament Act in 1911, which curtailed uh, the powers of the House of Lords, was uh, Asquith um, promising to introduce the third Home Rule Bill. So this only occurs in 1912. Brewer joins the IRB in 1908 uh, when Home rule appears to be a very uh, distant prospect. In fact, um, Asquith's uh, predecessor uh, in the Liberals, Campbell Bannerman, uh, was actively averse to home rule because of the divisions it had occasioned uh, within the, the Liberal Party. Um, so in some senses, um, the, the, the IRB it is a marginal force uh, in the early 20th century, but it is composed of... Um, ideological zealots who are very, very committed. Now, the big problem for them is that they do not have uh, an instrument uh, through which uh, to achieve an Irish Republic. That comes about as a result of the third home rule crisis, when um, two paramilitary forces um, are created on the island, uh, the Ulster Volunteer Force and uh, the Irish uh, Volunteers. And you can imagine the eyes of the uh, IRB leadership lighting up uh, when the, the Irish volunteers uh, come into being. Several of their members are prominently involved in establishing the Irish volunteers. This is their, uh, this is the instrument by which they can uh, achieve uh, their, their goal. And also, Tom, one of the, one of the kind of longstanding um, uh, I suppose, positions of the IRB uh, was the desirability of taking action when um, Britain was distracted in a major international conflict. That also is in, is, is in the future. Uh, and the beginning of the First World War in 1914, um, again, transforms uh, the fortunes of the IRB. So let's look at the, the outbreak of the First World War and the, sort of maybe the first period of the First World War, which will take us up to the Easter Rising. What was uh, Brewer's um, role in the Easter Rising and how did he react to the outbreak of the Great War? Um, I suppose, Tom, the first point to, to make uh, is that um, the, the outbreak of the war um, presented a very significant crisis for the Irish volunteers. Uh, so those volunteers uh, who were adherents of, of Owen MacNeill, who were kind of the originators of the, uh, the organisation, who were members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, did not want uh, Irishmen uh, being involved in the war while an Irish government was not allowed uh, to, to exist. So uh, they questioned the logic of why uh, should you go off and fight for small nations when Britain had not granted uh, Ireland uh, home rule. Home rule, of course, had been uh, granted and then suspended. Uh, so it was a really hollow victory for John, for John Redmond. Uh, Redmond famously uh, at Wooden Bridge in September 1914 um, um, su suggested that uh, Irishmen should go as far as the firing line extends. So in a sense, he is uh, committing himself and committing the volunteers uh, to the British war effort. This causes the volunteer movement to split. The majority, the overwhelming majority, uh, remain loyal uh, to Redmond. 
they become known as the national volunteers and as an organization it very quickly withers so it's 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 more or less defunct uh, by the end uh, of 1915 the smaller group somewhere between 9000 and 11000 retained the original name uh, irish volunteers Brewer is on that side uh, of uh, of the split. And it is that group or a small minority of that group uh, who um, plan uh, and carry out the 1916 Rising. So that brings us to a nice segue to talk about the Rising. So what's Brewer's role in the Rising? Maybe if I just start there. Um, around this time, particularly around 1915, um, there were divisions within the volunteers and an advanced section uh, believed that an insurrection should happen sooner rather than later, and a case again of taken, taking advantage of um, Britain's difficulties as it was engaged in the First World War. And this advanced group uh, established a secret military council, and uh, that involved people like uh, Parik Pierce, um, uh, Eamon Kant, uh, the socialist leader, James Connolly, and Sean McDiarmid and others. Now, Brewer was not a member of the secret military council, but he certainly um, was in their confidence. And uh, he was very well aware of what was being planned to such an extent that they shared the secret plans for the rising with him gave him a copy of the plans in case the main leaders were arrested. And he stored those plans in a canister, which he buried at the back of his garden uh, for safekeeping. And um, the rising was planned for Easter 1916, as you know. Uh, but when the orders of the Secret Military Council were countermanded, um, they decided to go ahead. And the, the reason that the, 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 the the, the rising was planned for Easter Monday um, of 1916. But, you know, at that stage, there, there was so much confusion with regard to the countermanding of orders uh, that only a small group of people uh, turned up on that Monday morning. And the plans of the leaders were to take over uh, six significant buildings in, the Dub in Dublin city. Uh, and to form garrisons there. Um, Brewer had been made um, vice commandant in the 4th Battalion of the Volunteers, and uh, Eamon Kant, his close friend, was commandant, and they were assigned to take over one of the six garrisons, uh, which was the referred to as the South Dublin Union um, in, in, in Dublin, in, in the south side of the city. Now, the South Dublin Union um, consisted of 52 acres. Its main role was the provision of services for the destitute and for, for poor people. It was a site consisting of sprawling buildings. And as they assembled kind of in Dublin to march towards the uh, South Dublin Union that Monday morning, um, only 70 men turned up to be a part of the battalion. They would, had things been, um, have, had things gone to plan without orders being countermanded, they would have expected a couple of hundred. And um, they found themselves in the South Dublin Union and uh, took over a building 
to form part of their headquarters there. But effectively, they only had about 40 men because other uh, men within the, the group of 70 had been assigned to sub-garrisons uh, in, in, in the surrounding area. Um, but the South Dublin Union as a garrison probably saw uh, the, the, the most heavy combat um, of the garrisons within Dublin, and it was close kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat uh, fighting. And um, on Thursday of that week in the South Dublin Union, Brewer was seriously injured as a result of a grenade attack and rifle fire. And um, it was not expected that he would live. And the following day, arrangements were made for him to be transferred uh, to the local acute uh, hospital department within the South Dublin Union uh, for initial treatment. And um, it was during the course of that examination, it was discovered that he had 25 wounds. Um, five at least were determined as being very serious. And his, his left leg from his hip down to his knee, down to his foot, uh, was described as just one mass of wounds and um, it, it, it wasn't expected that he, he would survive. But after the general surrender, I mean, the, 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 the insurrection, the rising of 1916, uh, because of the small number of people involved up against the might of kind of the British forces in Ireland, it was never going to be successful they were in a sense make, making a point. And um, after the surrender uh, at the end of the week, uh, Brewer was transferred initially to um, Dublin Castle uh, Hospital as both a patient and a prisoner, and later to uh, King George V um, Hospital, uh, later renamed St. Brickens. And overall, he spent a number of months there. He was discharged in August uh, 1916. And uh, interestingly, the medical staff and clinicians at the time deemed him permanently incapacitated, that he was generally unfit for anything, even you know, to resume to uh, an, a normal work life. And perhaps you know, that, that saved him from execution. And it certainly saved him from um, incarceration or spending a long time uh, in, in prison. Uh, but that kind of was essentially uh, his role there. But his role will always be remembered for his outstanding bravery and kind of while injured, um, holding back kind of a British army force and repelling them almost single-handedly. And... Um, you know, it, 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 it's one part of, of, of Brewer's legacy overall, his outstanding bravery. I think it's worth mentioning as well, uh, just something to say about Brewer. He was a devout Catholic and his Catholic faith was very important to him. And um, it wasn't unusual at the time because um, most of the uh, people involved in the revolutionary period and in 1916, um, would have been fairly religious uh, people, but Brewer certainly more than most. And um, 
it, it was remarked or recorded uh, by some of his comrades in the South Dublin Union that he insisted on um, his um, comrades and colleagues praying every day, saying the, the, the Catholic Rosary every evening. He would arrange for a priest to visit, to hear confessions, etc. So uh, religion and his faith dominated his life. Um, so, Dahi, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, I, I might add just a few general comments on 1916, Tom, just for your for your listeners, if that's OK. Um, so I suppose the first point maybe is that uh, militarily, the 1916 rising, it's doomed to failure uh, when it becomes clear that areas outside Dublin uh, are not going uh, to, to, to rise up. Uh, and after six days uh, resistance, uh, the leadership um, uh, uh, agreed uh, to surrender uh, because of the number of civilian lives in particular, uh, which were being lost. Um, roughly speaking, about 500 people were killed uh, as a result of the rising. 55% of those uh, were uh, were civilians. Now, what's very important for, for, for us to understand uh, is that the rising, um, it, militarily, it's a failure. But politically, uh, it is transformed due to the reaction of the British government. So, uh, and there's sort of three strands to this. The first is the imposition of martial law uh, from the Wednesday of Easter week over the entire country, even over areas that were quiet, that did not uh, rise up at Easter 1916. That is deeply unpopular. Um, General Sir John Maxwell, um, who had uh, served in Egypt, now effectively becomes military governor in Ireland uh, for three months. He becomes a very unpopular figure. Um, there are um, mass arrests and roundups uh, after the rising, and the death penalty uh, is um, is served on 90 of those people who are arrested. Now, all uh, but 15 of those um, death penalties are commuted. Uh, so between the 3rd and the 12th of May, 14 executions take place in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin, and one execution uh, takes place uh, in Cork. Now, the executions um, uh, generate significant public sympathy. There is an instinctive uh, dislike, uh, or there was an instinctive dislike, of seeing Irishmen executed on the orders of the British government. Some of the executions themselves were controversial because of the youth uh, of some of those executed. James Connolly, the socialist leader uh, had to be propped up in a chair uh, because he had suffered uh, wounds to his uh, leg and ankle and the execution of an injured man also caused uh, outrage. Um, the second element uh, was widespread uh, arrests, use of internment. Three and a half thousand people were arrested after the rising. Um, within a week, about 1500 of those were released. 1800 uh, were then transferred uh, to prisons uh, in Britain, and uh, many of them then were uh, sent to a military detention camp in North Wales called Frangoch. Brewer, of course, uh, is excluded because, as Jerry mentioned, uh, his injuries are are, are, are so uh, extensive. Um, what's, Im what's important, Tom, for uh, Brewer's future career as revolutionary uh, is that um, the executions included all the signatories uh, of the Irish Proclamation of the Republic, uh, including his great friend, Eamon Kant. Uh, it also includes all the battalion commandants, with the exception uh, of Eamon de Valera. So by default, 
uh, Brewer is uh, one of the few senior figures uh, who is A, still alive, uh, and B, due to his injuries, um, uh, um, at, at liberty. So he was not he was not um, not arrested, not interned. Uh, so he's on the ground in Dublin, uh, and even from his hospital bed, uh, is making plans uh, to uh, revive uh, the the Irish Volunteers. And just, I, I think. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, uh, Tom, maybe just a, a small point, kind of to add to that. I, I think kind of what was important were the number of people who who approached Brewer, despite his injuries. Um, you know, uh, people approached him, asking first of all, kind of, will there be another insurrection? But mainly, who's going to reorganise kind of the volunteers and the look towards him? So. I think that was part of the esteem with, with, in which he was held uh, by others, that they looked towards him as, uh, you know, the man who would, who would pull things together. And, you know, I think obviously his heroics kind of within the uh, Easter Rising um, stood to him in this regard. Brewer's in hospital. He gets out in late 1916. He's free. What does he do for the remainder of the Great War? Um, I suppose the first thing he concentrates on Tom is recovery. Um, it takes him uh, several months of recuperation. Uh, his wounds heal very slowly. His mobility is permanently hampered by a lacerated nerve and other kind of irreversible damage to his, his left leg. Uh, so he's usually pictured thereafter on a bicycle uh, because walking for any distance uh, caused him uh, considerable considerable pain. Uh, he also had to remove his, his boot. He had a special special boot made, uh, had to remove his boot when he was at his desk. Um, so he, he concentrates largely on two things. The war becomes increasingly unpopular in Ireland uh, for a number of reasons. There is a uh, there is a sort of a growing fear, a gnawing fear uh, that conscription is going to be imposed uh, on, on Ireland. Uh, there are um, uh, consumers uh, are, are, are generally perturbed by the rise in, in, in prices and, and so forth. Uh, so the, there is fertile ground uh, to use the war uh, as a means of uh, generating uh, a kind of a new political campaign uh, and reorganizing uh, the Irish volunteers. And Brewer throws himself into the role uh, of reorganization. So in particular, uh, the Irish volunteers, but he also plays a central role uh, in recreating and transforming uh, the Sinn Féin party. Now, before the rising, uh, Sinn Féin was a small and marginal party. It's a very different beast after the Rising, uh, when it is transformed by the likes of Michael Collins, uh, De Valera and others uh, into um, an alternative political vehicle and a rival uh, to the Irish Parliamentary Party. Its goal uh, is to achieve international recognition for the Irish Republic that was declared during the uh, during the Easter Rising, and Brewer plays an important function uh, in bringing uh, the various factions within Sinn Féin uh, to a sort of a commonly uh, agreed uh, position. This is important because everyone knows there is going to be a general election um, as soon as the war uh, ends. Uh, there having not been an election uh, since 1910, uh, and Sinn Féin 
um, uh, are very keen also to take advantage uh, of the representation of the People Act, uh, which triples the size of the Irish electorate, uh, many voting uh, for uh, for the first time. But I just want to let you in there, Jerry, as I'm sure you've you've a lot more to add. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you mentioned those very important points about his involvement in the reorganisation of the volunteers and his role in kind of the development and uh, the, the resurrection, so, so to speak, of Sinn Féin. But I, I think another point just to add at this stage, Brewer had a very particular interest in the plight of Irish political prisoners in Britain. And um, there was concern rising kind of, you know, with regard to the harsh treatment um, of, of political prisoners, particularly in uh, the early part of 1917, and uh, in particular, uh, prisoners in Lewis Jail. And a, a protest march organized by Irish National Aid and the Volunteer Dependence Fund um, organized a protest for central Dublin on the 10th of June, 1917, um, just to highlight kind of those um, issues that prisoners had to endure. However, the authorities uh, banned the protest, uh, but the leaders of the protest decided to proceed and it was intended that Cahill Brewer, along with uh, Count George Plunkett, uh, would speak at the protest march. But as soon as they uh, started to speak, they were immediately arrested and taken into custody and uh, removed to Arbor Hill um, military barracks. Now, Although they were they were going to be tried by court martial, but they were released at least maybe a week later. But the interesting point here is that it was it was the first of only two occasions that Cahill Brewer was arrested, and um, the, the second arrest uh, occurred in January 19, 1919 on his uh, way home from Waterford. Uh, he stopped off at Turles Station and he was arrested by a local police officer in what the police officer described as refusing to give his name in plain English. So he was uh, taken away to the local barracks, uh, but after a few hours, um, he was um, re released. But it was remarkable uh, that for a man like Brewer, that it was um, only the second time uh, that, he, that he was arrested. But Brewer was very security conscious and um, he avoided publicity and he avoided having his photograph taken. He always carry, carried a gun. And um, particularly, you know, when the first doll was established, uh, he would disguise himself uh, quite regularly and um, often went around or, or kind of disguised um, as a Catholic priest. And eventually uh, the authorities in Dublin Castle uh, placed uh, an award um, on his head for his arrest um, of £5,000. Um, but he was a man that, um, you know, despite having a very young family, um, you know, at this stage, I think kind of he, he had four young children and um, 
he, he, and remarkably, you know, he was running a business as well. He, he rarely stayed at home, um, but um, successfully um, avoided detention by, by the authorities. Um, so that probably kind of leads us kind of up to um, the whole area of conscription, if, if you want to come in on that, Dahi. Sure. Um, I suppose conscription um, electrifies Ireland um, in, in, in 1918. Um, it had been, of course, introduced in Britain in January 1916 by Lloyd George. Um, and um, as the war progresses, as the need for manpower increases, um, there is growing um, political pressure uh, from the Tories and the coalition government and growing public pressure uh, for conscription to be extended uh, to Ireland. Uh, this is proposed in, in uh, April um, 1918, and it, it leads all sections of Irish political life uh, to come together. So uh, John Dillon leads the Irish Parliamentary Party out of Westminster, uh, and there is an extraordinary uh, meeting at the Mansion House in Dublin uh, between Sinn Féin, representatives of Labour, uh, representative, uh, representatives of the, of the Irish Parliamentary Party and others. And there is uh, absolute fervent uh, opposition uh, to conscription. So it is one thing for uh, Irish uh, men uh, to uh, enlist in the army voluntarily, an entirely different thing uh, for people to be conscripted. Uh, so it is a boom, in a sense, uh, for the Irish volunteers. Uh, people flock to the volunteers uh, on the logic that they would prefer to die on their own doorstep uh, than die uh, on the Western Front. Um, and um, the very significantly also uh, the Catholic Church backs uh, this anti-conscription uh, position, um, and uh, the so the this uh, coalition that is opposed to conscription uh, now has, if you like, the moral backing of the Catholic uh, Church. The authorities, uh, both the military authorities and the police, are pretty certain uh, that so much manpower would be required to implement conscription uh, that it would hardly be worth uh, the trouble. Politically, um, Sinn Féin is the great victor from this. Uh, as we know, conscription was not imposed uh, on Ireland and Sinn Féin um, uh, wins all the kudos uh, for achieving that, uh, and they use that to their advantage um, at the 1918 general election. Now, one of the most interesting uh, points about uh, the uh, conscription um, crisis uh, was a plot uh, to assassinate uh, the British uh, cabinet. Um, and I'm going to let Jerry uh, uh, talk about this, um, but quite an extraordinary plot. Yeah, I mean, this is extraordinary. Um, uh, Brewer decided um, to undertake this extraordinary and perhaps outrageous uh, mission uh, to Britain uh, to assassinate members of the British cabinet in the event um, of conscription being introduced to Ireland. Um, now, some of uh, Brewer's colleagues and comrades uh, the time describe it as an act of sheer lunacy. However, it must be um, noted that the scheme was approved by the National Executive of the Volunteers. Um, now, even though Brewer was the main advocate, and extraordinarily, it didn't kind of take up much debate. 
and was passed without much discussion. So much so that in later years, when uh, President Eamon de Valera was asked about this incident, he couldn't recall it because it just didn't take up uh, much uh, attention. But he said Brewer would never undertake an action like that without it being approved. And interestingly enough, both Michael Collins and uh, 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 Richard Mulcahy, who was chief of staff of the volunteers at this time, facilitated the mission by identifying people who might be suitable uh, as members to go on the mission with Brewer. They looked originally at a group of about 70 people, um, but uh, they only identified a small handful at the end of the day because that number, most of them did not volunteer and others were just deemed unsuitable. So they only had about a half a dozen traveling with Brewer uh, to uh, London. And I suppose kind of what was extraordinary as well is that Brewer insisted in, in leading the mission uh, himself. Like Brewer had no real first-hand experience uh, of, of this type of mission. But he spent uh, five months in London plan, planning uh, the mission. Uh, they visited the House of Commons on quite a number of occasions. They were in the public gallery, um, planning kind of um, how they would take the shots, who would take the first shot. But even though they spent time planning, it was not planned very well. And uh, there were conflicting accounts as to how this mission would be carried out. Uh, one member of the mission said they were uh, asked to draw names of the British uh, cabinet from a hat and each man would be assigned uh, one member of the cabinet. And um, another member of the mission recalls uh, Brewer saying in the House of Commons, I'll take them all on and assassinate them in the House of Commons. You just hold people back from, uh, from preventing that, that happening. However, uh, by September, the plan to uh, introduce conscription uh, in Ireland had been abandoned. And by October, uh, Brewer returned home. And um, at that stage, uh, plans were in operation for the upcoming uh, general election to take place in December of 1918. And Brewer was selected to represent the uh, county of Waterford. And um, that was not a surprise kind of selection. Brewer was uh, very much... Um, familiar with the county of Waterford, Waterford through his uh, work as a commercial traveller, but also he spent a lot of time there uh, in the Waterford Gaeltacht, um, improving his uh, spoken Irish. And Sinn Féin had decided that in Gaeltacht areas or in uh, communities where Irish was spoken, uh, that the candidate needed to have a fluency in Irish so Brewer was the ideal candidate. And I would just say at this point in time, Brewer always maintained that he was a reluctant participant in politics. He mentioned that both inside and outside the doll. 
but he would have taken it on board if it was part of the overall mission to secure not only separatism, but to attain uh, the Republic. Um, so I, I, I'll just leave it at that if Dahi wants to add anything further to it. No, I think I think uh, one point maybe worth making is that at the nineteen eighteen general election, uh, Sinn Fein have uh, a number of uh, of uh, policy commitments. Um, the first is, as I mentioned earlier, to which it is for international recognition of an Irish Republic. So they're planning to send uh, a delegation to the Versailles. Uh, a peace conference, uh, which they do, and unsurprisingly, uh, they are not left anywhere near the uh, the uh, negotiations. Uh, the second objective uh, was to abstain uh, from Westminster and instead uh, to establish a national assembly in Dublin. Um, and uh, this uh, this uh, was achieved. Uh, the meeting of the first stall took place on the twenty first uh, of January. Uh, so opposition to British rule in Dublin. Dublin would now take the form of a democratically elected rival government. Um, and the meeting of the first stall is very significant in Brewer's life and in Brewer's career. Uh, he was given the honour of being elected the speaker, or the, the Kion Corla is the, is the Irish terminology uh, for that. He was also given the honour uh, of reading the Declaration of Independence in the Irish language. Notably, as soon as he had read it, uh, he told those, pres uh, those present, you understand from this that we are now done with England. Uh, now, the, the meeting of the first stall um, was it was not uh, was not heavily uh, attended. Many of the TDs uh, were uh, on the run. Uh, other significant figures were in prison. So Eamon de Valera, for example, uh, was then in Lincoln prison. Um, uh, in Britain. Uh, and uh, for that reason, uh, Brewer was elected acting uh, president uh, in De Valera's absence. So when De Valera was released, uh, the uh, government that was established in January uh, 1919 uh, was reconstituted. Um, De Valera became president and Brewer then uh, assumed uh, the defence uh, port portfolio. Um, now, he uh, did not uh, accept a ministerial salary. Uh, he believed that um, he had sufficient funds from his own uh, business uh, to, uh, to sustain him. So uh, he ran the Ministry of Defence uh, from his office uh, on Lower Ormond Quay on the banks uh, of the, of the uh, River Liffey. Um, as you can imagine, uh, running an underground uh, government uh, was particularly challenging. Uh, Brewer rarely slept at home. He was always on the run. Making reports um, to the Dáil uh, was very difficult. Uh, and there were also very confusing lines of authority uh, within uh, the Dáil and between uh, the political side, Sinn Féin, and the military side, uh, the Irish Volunteers, which from 1919 became known as the uh, IRA or the Irish Republican Army. Now, significantly, uh, on the same day uh, as the meeting of the first Dáil on the 21st of January, two policemen uh, were shot dead at Sullahead Beg in County Tipperary uh, by members of the Irish uh, Volunteers who were trying to seize uh, a cartload of gelignite. And those shots in Tipperary uh, are widely regarded as the first, or uh, the opening shots uh, of the War of Independence, uh, largely, I suppose, because of the symmetry 
between uh, that incident and the meeting uh, of, of the first dog. Now, Brewer um, is not uh, gung-ho in favour uh, of um, striking at uh, the police. He's very, very cautious uh, in, in the early months of the War of Independence because he fears uh, that if there are uh, widespread attacks on members of the Crown forces, uh, that this would damage Ireland's international reputation and would damage the prospects uh, of the Irish uh, delegation that was sent uh, to, to Paris. What Sinn Féin don't really fully understand, of course, uh, is that um, the uh, small nations that are going to be recognised at Versailles uh, are, are, are not the constituent parts uh, of the victors in the First World War. Um, and of course, that quickly becomes uh, apparent uh, to them. Which brings us neatly on to the War of Irish Independence. Can you tell us about Bruja's, um activities during that conflict? Jerry, do you want to, to start off with arms yeah, raids or? Okay, well, during kind of the War of Independence, kind of uh, as Dahi mentioned, um, uh, Brew was was Minister for Defence, and um, you know it it was a logical appointment, kind of uh, for for Brewer to go into defence because as Chairman of the Volunteers, he he provided that link between the military side and the the, the political side. Um, I, I think it's kind of, you know, during this period, maybe kind of we'll touch on it, kind of we see divisions starting to arise between himself and Michael Collins, um, you know, who had uh, within the volunteers kind of responsibility for intelligence. And um, also, you know, we see kind of um, a heavy engagement in um the purchase of arms uh, for the, uh, the, the arm, arm struggle. And um, conflict kind of arose there because uh, both Brewer and uh, Collins were, were involved in that regard. And I think kind of uh, Brewer would have seen Collins as being on a clandestine mission in some respects and that a lot of the arms he was diverting towards his own organization the irish republican brotherhood and it has to be remembered kind of after 1916 brewer saw no need for the irish republican brotherhood he felt its days were over we now have a, a constituted parliament um uh, a, a, a doll and um, he saw kind of the IRB as almost, you know, a government within a government, that it was a threat to the doll, because the supreme commander of the IRB, under its constitution, uh, was still head of the republic. So uh, uh, that in Brewer's mind uh, undermined uh, the doll. And this is kind of where uh, conflict with Collins began. And... Okay, con conflict arose for other reasons as well. Um, I think their personalities were something else. They, they, they were at extreme ends, uh, you know, of the, um, the, 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 the personality line. In, in fact, I think it was Ernie, Ernie O'Malley who said about uh, Brewer, he did not curse, smoke or drank, whereas Michael Collins was adept at all three. And, you know, that just gives you um, a, an idea of the, the conflict of personality. Um, but also Collins had this kind of ability or kind of insistence in wanting to put his um, 
or into everyone's everyone's business. Uh, yeah, I should say Collins kind of was also Minister for Finance uh, at this point in time, um, but he protected his own um, his own department and his own business. But he wanted to be involved in others, so he undermined uh, Brewer in some respects uh, as Minister uh, for for Defence, and you know a serious row broke out between Collins and. Uh, Brewer in relation to uh, accounts for arms purchase in Scotland and um, that uh, Collins was not uh, particularly uh, concerned uh, with keeping a, a, a proper tab on money. But and a lot of people would have accused um, Brewer as being a bit, little bit uh, too pernickety in this regard. But Brewer had the same issue with Harry Boland who was on a mission in the United States uh, to purchase um, arms. And I think, you know, this goes back to what we were saying earlier on about the financial difficulties that Brewer witnessed as a child when his father's business collapsed. So, you know, economies and uh, financial regularity, financial property, were always very, very important to him. And I think it was um, it, 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 it was Lee Mellows um, who, who made an interesting comment uh, about Brewer uh, because of his difficulty in getting money from him from the Department of Defense. He said, um, uh, Brewer would sit all night with his mouth open uh, like a mousetrap protect, protecting a half a crown. So he had that reputation. Um, of protecting money and trying to economize um, as, as best as possible. Um, so, you know, a lot of brewers business at this point in time, trying to run the Department of Defense, defense trying to um, secure arms, uh, but having constant uh, conflict uh, with, uh, with Collins and, um, you know, kind of the, that personality clash uh, continued to spill over from that time uh, up, up up until the, the time of the treaty negotiations uh, and the, the treaty debates. But okay, is there anything you want to add, Dahi? Uh, no, Jerry, that was very, uh, very comprehensive. Um, okay. okay, well, I'll move on to question nine. So great. The, the War of Irish Independence is concluded by the Anglo-Irish Agreement in late 1921. And then following this, um, the Irish Civil War breaks out. Um, can you tell us about um, Brewer's role in that conflict and that ultimately led to his death? Um, I, I might start here, Jerry, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, I suppose the, the, the first point to make, uh, Tom, is that uh, the, the Dáil's approval uh, of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in January 1922, it represents a shattering defeat for Brewer because it disestablished the pursuit of a republic, which was the governing thesis, if you like, uh, of Brewer's life. What's offered instead is dominion status on the same basis as, as, as Canada, for, for, for example. Uh, now, Brewer, even though uh, he is is opposed to the treaty, um, he largely respects the decision uh, of the Dáil and he 
uh, guarantees that the IRA would remain loyal uh, to the Dáil. The problem for Brua and others, however, uh, is that the, uh, the the military men uh, within the anti-treaty IRA take matters very much into their own hands and sideline uh, the politicians like Brua and De Valera who are opposed to the treaty. Uh, now, Brewer um, hopes uh, that he can win public opinion uh, around uh, to his position. He places particular emphasis uh, on the Constitution, which is then uh, being devised. But he is, um, um, I suppose, in some, in some respects, pessimistic uh, that, that um, no matter what Constitution is presented to the British government, that they would probably regard it as, as, as too Republican. And without that, it would be impossible uh, to win over uh, militants um, who... Um, are utterly opposed uh, to the uh, to the treaty. Now, the civil war doesn't uh, begin uh, immediately. The anti-treaty forces occupy the four courts uh, in Dublin in April. Uh, this does not trigger a civil war. There are all sorts of efforts to prevent uh, civil war breaking out. So for a start, uh, a general election, which in effect is going to be a referendum on the treaty, is postponed. Uh, that does not take place uh, until uh, June uh, 1922. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there is a hope that um, the, the constitution that is being devised for the Irish Free State, that that will bring uh, two sides together. Um, the two political leaders, Collins on the pro-treaty side, de Valera on the anti-treaty side, agree uh, a treaty uh, pact uh, where the same proportion of deputies who are pro and anti-treaty uh, would be uh, agreed and returned uh, at the general election. Um, now, Brewer it, it does uh, hold his seat uh, at that general uh, election, um, but what, uh, the, if you like, the trigger event uh, for the Civil War uh, is the assassination uh, of Sir Henry Wilson uh, on his doorstep in London. Uh, that forces the British cabinet uh, to put pressure on their uh, on the Irish government to take action uh, against uh, those in the four courts. Now, those in the four courts uh, have no direct um, link to what occurs uh, in London, but it is a pretext for the more belligerent members uh, of, uh, of the British government, Winston Churchill in particular, uh, to put pressure uh, on, uh, on Michael Collins and the Irish government. So they do not want uh, to be seen uh, to um, to sort of uh, um, uh, respond uh, to, uh, to this diktat from the British government. And instead, they have their own pretext uh, for taking action. Uh, one of their top ranking generals, J.J. Um, uh, O'Connell, uh, is kidnapped. And this is used as a pretext uh, by the provisional uh, government in Dublin uh, to uh, use borrowed uh, artillery pieces, so borrowed um, 18 pounder guns um, borrowed from the British Army, um, and they are used to shell uh, the four course complex uh, on the 28th uh, of June 1922. Uh, and this is the beginning uh, of, the, of the Civil War. Um, in, in the book, we, we uh, use the expression uh, that Brewer fought and died in a civil war that he opposed. So for Brewer, the idea that uh, comrades who had uh, fought uh, uh, together, uh, who had uh, lost uh, friends and family members, that they would now be uh, fighting 
among themselves, uh, th this was really a, a disastrous situation. What changes his perspective uh, is uh, the use of these borrowed uh, borrowed uh, guns and Brewer's belief that it's sort of the British government uh, is, is sort of forcing uh, the beginning of the Irish Civil War. So uh, he uh, signs up uh, um, to the anti-treaty forces in O'Connell Street, that's the main street uh, in, in Dublin uh, city centre. Uh, and almost immediately, uh, he's made uh, a staff uh, commandant uh, in charge of a number of buildings that are occupied uh, by anti-treaty uh, forces uh, in Dublin city centre. So the National Army, that's the, uh, that's the, the Irish Army, which had to be very hastily uh, assembled before the, the Civil War, uh, it, it, it focuses initially uh, on uh, the Four Courts complex. Uh, once the, uh, the, the anti-treaty garrison there surrenders, they then turn their focus uh, on uh, Brewer and his small contingent uh, of just 70. Um, uh, they become uh, the, the focus of the National Army uh, in the first uh, few days of July 1922. Again, um, the buildings are shelled um, and the chances of the, of the anti-treaty uh, IRA holding out for very long are minimal uh, because they have very uh, little uh, support, very few supply lines, uh, and they're in a static position. Their, their best hope uh, would to, would have been to adopt uh, a, a guerrilla uh, style position, which they do uh, uh, later uh, in the uh, in the civil war after the conventional phase of warfare uh, comes to an end. On the 3rd of July, uh, most of that uh, garrison of 70 uh, are ordered uh, to vacate those buildings uh, in O'Connell Street. Brewer, typically enough, um, it remains uh, with a very small garrison of just uh, 17. Um, many of those who are with him, particularly um, the members of Common Amon, which is the, uh, the female Republican organization, they're pretty certain um, that Brewer does not intend uh, to surrender. Um, and in, in one of the conversations, um, Brewer sort of makes clear uh, that uh, he believes that there so much blood has been shed already that he hopes that uh, that. He, his death in the civil war might shock both sides into kind of laying down their, their arms and into shortening uh, the civil war uh, conflict. Now, on the 5th of, of July, uh, Brewer's small garrison are compelled to surrender. The hotels that they occupy, uh, the Gresham Hotel, the Hammond Hotel, uh, are on fire um, and uh, they're forced to uh, to uh, surrender. Um, you can imagine the, the scene. Uh, there is smoke everywhere. Uh, the fire brigade are trying to extinguish uh, fires. Um, you have soldiers moving about. Uh, Brewer uh, uh, emerges um, bearing his um, uh, Peter the Painter pistols. Um, now, uh, th 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 there was a, there's a lot of confusion about whether he was actually firing uh, when uh, he surrendered or not. But our research indicates uh, that uh, he, he, he might have been giving uh, verbals, but he was certainly uh, not shooting uh, at anyone. That would have been very much, I think, against his, uh, against his, his principles. Uh, he is ordered to halt. He doesn't do so. Uh, and he's shot. He's wounded. 
uh, in the in the thigh and it severs his femoral uh, artery. Um, so uh, he uh, is taken eventually uh, to the nearby uh, Martyr, uh, Matter Hospital, uh, where he, he succumbs to his wounds uh, after, after uh, an, an operation. Obviously, given um, the weakened state of his uh, constitution after his 1916 uh, experience, uh, a, a wound to the thigh like that is going to be very uh, severe. Now, it did take Brewer quite some time or quite some hours elapsed before Brewer was brought to an operating theatre. Uh, and again, that may have uh, may, may have made a, a, a difference a difference to him. But I just want to let, let Jerry in here, um, uh, Tom. Yeah, just one thing I was going to add to what uh, Dahi said, Tom, is uh, just going back a little bit on uh, Brewer's total opposition to the Civil War. And in actual fact, in, in April of 1922, he had stated in the doll, I would prefer to die by an English bullet, an orange bullet, rather than a bullet fi fired by a fellow Irishman. So this was his abhorrence um, of, of civil war. Um, but as Dahi kind of mentioned, um, it was noticed by uh, some of the women who remained in the garrison that uh, Brewer was uh, preparing for, for his death. And, um, you know, when, when asked about, uh, about that, he seriously believed that maybe his death um, might uh, make some contribution towards pays, uh, bringing uh, the civil war uh, to, to an end. Um, but he died um, on the 7th of uh, July in the Matter Hospital, and the coroner found that it was a result of an injury um, fired by a bullet by a person um, un unknown. And, um, you know, kind of, you know, we, we, we try to kind of analyze his, his legacy kind of from there on in. The sad thing is that he left six young children. Uh, the youngest was only three months old. Uh, the eldest was nine. And um, again, we referred earlier on to um, his wife, Kathleen, being um, of, of a like mind. And um, she was later persuaded to stand for election for Sinn Féin in um, Cahill Brewer's old seat down in Waterford. And she was a reluctant um, politician, um, but she certainly carried kind of the torch um, of um, Brewer's, Cahill Brewer's republicanism and um, served kind of a, a, as a TD for a number of years, but had a falling, falling out with, with uh, de Valera's party after he formed Shin, uh, uh, Fianna Fáil and decided to enter uh, the Dáil in, in, in 1927. She remained a, a member of uh, the Sinn Féin party. Um, so that, that's really kind of it. I don't know if you want to kind of move on to legacy and kind of uh, how we might wrap it up. I think, so that's very, I think that's a very, very good place to start. So how, how would you rate Brewer's role in the creation of an independent Ireland? Um, well, I, I think his um, role certainly was significant, but it has been neglected. It has been understated. Um, I think in the aftermath of the 1916 rising, um, his contribution to um, reorganising the Irish volunteers 
but particularly as well as that as reorganizing Sinn Féin and turning it into um, a significant uh, polit political party. Also, um, he was a significant figure in the establishment of Dáil Éireann, our first Dáil, and uh, had a number of significant roles, as Dahi pointed out, as as speaker, as temporary president, then as minister for defence. And um, he put arrangements into place uh, to protect uh, the doll um, from uh, being undermined and having uh, members of the IRA, uh, doll deputies, doll clerks, swear allegiance to the doll, as well as the Irish Republic. So he, he set kind of the, the foundation um, for our future political structures. Is Dahi back with us? Yes. I am. Um, I suppose maybe one, one other point might be made. Um, Brewer is often uh, rightly uh, deemed to be a zealot, and certainly his commitment to an Irish Republic was uncompromising. And uh, in revolutions, you need uh, those sort of uncompromising uh, zealots. And Brewer's great strengths um, were very important, I think, in the period between in 1917 and 1918 and 1919. Uh, the, the same strengths um, were, of course, less advantageous after the signing uh, of, of the treaty. But what we've tried to show uh, in our book, Tom, is that um, Brewer deserves more uh, than simply being sort of dismissed for an act of defiance in 1916, another act of defiance, of heroic defiance in 1922, uh, and furious ad hominem attacks uh, on Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith uh, during the, the treaty debates, um, that his um, his legacy uh, is, is far broader than that and far, and far more significant. Which leads me conveniently on to the last uh, point is where can people get the book? Um, well, our, our book, Cahal Burua, An Indomitable Spirit, is published uh, by Four Courts Press in Dublin. It's available in all good bookshops in Ireland and in Britain. Uh, it's all av also available online from fourcourtspress.ie uh, and from other uh, online uh, booksellers. And where can people learn more about your research? Um, I suppose our research, you can find uh, more about that from the website of the School of History and Geography at Dublin City University. I was going to say thank you very much for your time and I will not massacre the Irish language anymore. You're very welcome, Tom. It was our pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS21. Nine five. Until next time. <laughs>